This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with two guests, Dr. Robert Tierney, professor of Japanese literature and head of the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of Illinois, along with Dr. Xiaowei Zheng, associate professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Dr. Tierney is the author of Monster of the 20th Century, Kotokushusui, and Japan's First Anti-Imperialist Movement, published by the University of California Press in 2015. And Dr. Zhang is the author of The Politics of Rights and the 1911 Revolution in China, published by Stanford University Press in 2018. Dr. Zhang, Dr. Tierney, thank you both for talking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having us. So it's not too common that I've had two guests on at the same time, but the reason I wanted to talk with you both is that you're both currently doing research on Nakai Chomin and looking particularly at political intellectual thought in the Meiji period. Uh, and so, Bob, starting with you, can you introduce Nakai Chomin to us and give a sense of who he was and where he fits into Japanese intellectual history in the Meiji period? Okay, certainly. He was uh, born in the late Edo period and was one of the first Japanese. He participated in the Iwakura mission, but he was one of the first intellectuals to be educated in France. He went to France in 1872, right after the Commune of Paris and the Franco-Prussian War. And this was a period of great transition in France to a republican form of government. And I think there's a kind of analogy between what he experiences at that time in France and later when he returns to Japan, I think in 1874, he translates the social contract of Rousseau into Japanese. And uh, this is a very influential translation with Japanese and the freedom and people's rights movements. And for that reason, He's considered to be a very, very important intellectual and journalist uh, in Japan at that time. He's primarily known for his journalism and translations, actually. He wrote The Political Dialogue of Three Drunkards, which is sort of a little bit later in the late 1880s, and talks about sort of the two courses that Japan could follow, one of them to become a Western-style democracy, the other one to become an empire. And it's interesting that in some ways... The next century is sort of the fulfillment of the two predictions that he makes. The first 50 years being the empire, and then the, the next 50 being Western-style democracy. He's actually called the Russo of the Far East, Toyo no Russo. And so his reputation transcends simply Japan to other countries. Uh, it's interesting that he translated Russo into Kanbun rather than into Japanese. So it would have been readable to a literate East Asian reader in any country. And you mentioned he participated in the Iwakura mission, went to Paris, for example. But when we think of early Meiji intellectuals, the one that comes to mind most immediately is Fukuzawa Yukichi, for example. So they were contemporaries, but were they allied in the ways that they were thinking about politics at the time? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, one of the reasons that I'm interested in Nakai Chomin is that he's been relatively neglected, although he has, I think he played an extremely important role in Japan in the Meiji period, probably because he was French educated. And most of the intellectuals that were very successful, they were trained in positivism and utilitarianism. 
And he has rather a different intellectual background. Now, he's a little bit younger than Fukuzawa Yukichi, about, I think it's 12 years younger. And there is a difference uh, between them. He starts a school of French studies, but it never becomes famous the way that Keio University becomes one of the great private universities of Japan. And also, unlike Fukuzawa, he is very actively involved in in the anti-government movement of this time. He is exiled from the capital, for example, before the constitution because he's considered to be a danger. He's also spied on by the Japanese uh, secret police during the Meiji period. And I think, on the other hand, uh, Fukuzawa Yukichi is a much more conventional intellectual who is, while he does comment on politics, is not involved in any political movement. And you mentioned that his most well-known writing in English is a discourse by three drunkards on government. Uh, Can you just briefly sketch out what this writing is and what he's saying about government? Yes, I think this book is, it's about what Japan should do at this time, at a time when Western imperial powers are taking over different parts of Asia. First of all, it's a dialogue. There's actually three people involved. There's uh, one person sort of represents the Yogaksha, I guess Western gentleman is the way it's been translated. And he advocates a you know popular constitution, a pacifist foreign policy, a focus on economic development, which were all sort of ideas that Chomin had supported when he was younger. The second member in the dialogue is described as kind of a militarist, and he favors invading China, taking it over and using the wealth of China to make Japan a strong country. So this has nothing to do with democracy, but it is nevertheless one of the tendencies in the freedom and popular rights movement was actually the assertion of national rights. So there's sort of a conflict between these two tendencies of the freedom and popular rights movement, one of them for minken or people's rights, and the other one for national rights. And then there's a third person who is called Dr. Nankai, who is sort of like the moderator of the discussion, but also brings up his, expresses his own opinions. And he's often considered to be a stand-in for Nakai Chomin. Talking about stand-ins, you know, this Yogaksha, is he perhaps a stand-in for somebody like Fukuzawa, whereas the militarist might be, I don't know, Yamagata Aritomo, or is there another thinker? I guess there is a relationship between him and Tokutomi Soho, who was one of the important intellectuals in the 80s, and particularly his ideas about moving from a an aristocratic or feudal society to an industrial society which he saw in terms of social Darwinism, that there was uh, this change that was sort of taking place. And the proper form of government would be a democratic form of government in which uh, the Haymin or the people would be the main actor. So this is definitely, uh, he is a stand-in for certain intellectuals in Japan at this time. Now, Xiaowei, if I could turn to you now. Bob was just talking about how Nakai Chomin's A Discourse by Three Drunkards on Government is one of his most well-known English works. But as he said, there's also a number of translations that he does of political thinkers like Rousseau and other Western political thinkers. Now, in your work, you've also looked at some of these translations, and you've talked about how influential they were 
for East Asian political theory. So can you introduce some of these translations and talk about why they were so important for Chinese intellectuals? Yes, of course. So in the year of 1886, Nakai Chomin published a textbook called The History of Western Philosophy. So this was contracted by the Department of Education. And then one of the most important person who introduced Nakai's work to Chinese was Liang Qichao. So from all the publications of Liang Qichao had in this time period, which I mean between 1900 and 1902, you can see that he was most influenced by Nakai Chaoming. He basically talked about all the Western philosophers using Nakai Chaoming's textbook. So he talked about Rousseau, Montesquieu, Descartes, all those scholars, and Hobbes, so on and so forth. So from the quantity, you can see that Nakai really influenced Liang Qichao. Liang Qichao has a magic pen. That's why he was able to introduce those theories using beautiful Chinese language to a great number of people. So very importantly, in the year of 1901, Liang Qichao published this article about Rousseau, Rousseau Xuan. And then one more time in the year of 1902, he republished this idea of Rousseau. So in this article, he introduced two very important concepts of Rousseau, which is liberty and also meaning the national citizens' rights. So he was using the term Zhuquan. In other times, he was using the term Zhuquan the sovereignty lies with the people. So I would say that because of Liang, Nakai became familiar for Chinese students. And then in the year of 1910, the most important revolutionary newspaper, Minbao, also serialized Nakai Chomin's translation and interpretation of Rousseau. So this was taken from 1909's Zhao Ming Wenji, the collection of Nakai Chaoming. So from the Chinese students' perspective, both the reformers and the revolutionaries were using Rousseau as a political inspiration. And a key concept was popular sovereignty. So even though they chose different political methods, the main idea, I would argue, is the same. So for those of us who are not so familiar with Chinese history, you mentioned Yang Qichao and some of his writings and how they were influenced by Nakai. Can you tell us a little bit more about Liang and what role he played in the revolution? So Liang Qichao, I would say he was the most important figure in intellectual history of China, modern intellectual history of China. He might not be the most thoughtful person, but he's a quick learner. And he also was the editor of some important journals. That's why he had this power to influence people. So Liang Qichao emerged in the 1980 days reform. And then after the failure of that reform, he went to Japan and stayed there for over 14 years. It's in Japan that Liang was able to study Western political theories. And because he was a quick learner and he writes so well, he was able to use his journals to translate those works and to introduce those works to Chinese readers. A lot of Liang Qichao's writing 
were able to enter China, even though he was a refugee of the Qin Dynasty. So basically, his book published in Japan was read by all the new students in China, and the ideas he introduced played a very important role in the revolution. So in terms of the most important ideas which he learned in Japan, I would argue freedom, equal liberty, and this idea that we are the masters of the state, those are the important concepts. And he also offered a solution so that we can have a state where people have rights. So he emphasized the rights to participate in politics. So in terms of Nakai Chongyin's influence on Liang, freedom is the most important thing because Liang Qichao had this famous saying, if we want to save today's China, we have to make sure everyone knows they have rights. Everyone knows they have liberty. And the second thing is in the Jiu Minkan movement and in Nakai Chomin's work, he also talked about nationalism and national sovereignty. And this was inherited by Liang Qichao. So he wouldn't think there was a real conflict between the interests of the nation and the interests of the individual. So he emphasized both Minkan, the people's rights, and also the nation's rights. And the way he was exercising this right was through participatory politics. That's why just like Nakai Chaomin and other Jiu Minkan movement thinkers, Liang Qichao also talks about the necessity of having a national assembly, a parliament. So you were talking about how Nakai's writings were influential for Liang Qichao and, and some of the Chinese revolutionaries. And you wrote about this in your book, The Politics of Rights in the 1911 Revolution in China. Could you talk a little bit more about, you know, what was it about Nakai's writings that were so influential for the Chinese revolutionaries? And maybe even offer your thoughts on you know, why was it that they were so influential for Chinese revolutionaries, but didn't really seem to catch on in Japan? Thank you for that question. So first of all, as I said in the answer to question number one, Nakai's work was both introduced by Liang Qichao and also the Chinese revolutionaries. Those were the anti-Manchu revolutionaries. So his work was appearing in both the so-called reformers' newspapers, but also the revolutionary newspapers. So people in the past emphasized that those two groups were so different, but in actuality, they shared the most important yet similar ideas about popular sovereignty. So let's first start with Liang Qichao and how Nakai influenced him. When he arrived in Japan in 1898, he was soon influenced and struck by Rousseau's idea. And he claimed that for China at that time, the most important thing is to make sure everyone knows they have rights and they have liberty. So I would say there are three things that Nakai Chaomin influenced Liang Qichao the most, maybe four. The first is this idea that everyone has liberty. At the same time, we don't see this conflict between individual freedom and national sovereignty. So how do we make sure that people exercise their rights? Nakai Chomin and all the Jiu Minghan movement leaders emphasize participatory politics, meaning 
they exercise their rights politically through national assembly. And that's why, just like the Jiuminkan movement leaders, Liang Qichao's group emphasized having a constitution and opening a national assembly. Fourth, the most influential ideas of Nakai is, unlike a lot of the Japanese translators who translated republic using the term kyowa, Nakai was actually against this idea. He was sticking to a classical understanding of republic. So in Nakai's understanding, which was also from Rousseau, having an emperor, having a king or not, that's not important. The most important thing is this polity is serving the public good. So this is classical understanding about republic. And this was inherited from my Liang Qichao as well. So unlike the later revolutionaries focusing on overthrowing the Qing dynasty, he mostly emphasized that we should have a polity that serves the public interest. And having the emperor or not, that's not important. The most important is for people to have the spirit of self-governance. That's the real spirit of having a polity. So all those we can see were clearly influenced by Nakai Chaomi. But I want to add something to that question too, because besides Nakai's translation of Rousseau, there are also other Japanese translations of Rousseau. For example, Harada-san, he translated Rousseau into Japanese in the year of 1883. And this Japanese translations were adopted by Chinese students. For example, in this translation and also the Chinese adoptions of this translation, you saw this very powerful metaphor. The state is like a company. The people are the shareholders. And the emperor was only a manager of this company. So it's okay for the shareholders to replace the management. This was more radical as a translation of Rousseau. But this metaphor became extremely popular. So I would say that Liang was very much influenced by Nakai Chaomin's translation. At the same time, other Chinese revolutionaries were influenced by this Japanese translation of Rousseau, which became more radical and which emphasized that the people are the masters of the state. And of course, Rousseau's basic idea, popular sovereignty, was well inherited by Liang Qichao. So overall speaking, I would say what the Chinese reformers and the revolutionaries, they both got this idea of popular sovereignty from Rousseau through different routes. And you asked me this question about Ning Ken. How do I understand Ning Ken? Actually, I really wanted to make my book title The Politics of Min Quan or Ming Ken in Japanese and the 1911 Revolution. In the Jiu Ming Ken movement, Ming Ken had two meanings. One is the rights of the people. The other one is like the power of the people or popular sovereignty. And this understanding was also inherited by Chinese students in Japan. So when Ming Ken became Min Quan, Min Quan also inherited those two meanings.
earlier, Bob, you mentioned the term Minken and, and the way that Nakai Chomin contributed to the people's rights movement. But uh, shall we just describe there seemed to be a difference in the way that Minken or popular rights were interpreted by members of the popular rights movement in Japan and the Chinese revolutionaries two decades later who were reading their own interpretation into this term uh, popular rights as something more akin to, say, popular sovereignty. Now, this concept of popular sovereignty in the Japanese case, and we think of Minobe Tatsukichi, his organ theory, or Yoshino Sakuzo and Minpon Shugi, the Taisho democracy in the 19-teens and 20s, but those ideas are considered treasonous. So can we think of the popular rights movement in the 80s and 90s as a missed opportunity, perhaps, to assert political individuality and rights vis-a-vis the state? prior to the solidification of an orthodoxy that rendered these more liberal ideas treasonous later? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I I guess the way I would like to answer this is to go back to the translation of Rousseau. And as I mentioned, that was into Kanbun. And basically, it's interesting that Chomin avoids using sort of neologisms for the most part in that translation, which I think makes his argument somewhat clearer. So for example, when he talks about popular sovereignty, he doesn't use the recently created word chuken for sovereignty, but rather a Chinese expression, which is basically kun zai min. So the sovereign is the people, basically. You couldn't be more clearer than that in many ways. However, he saw popular sovereignty to mean basically a constitutional democracy. So there would be a constitution that would embody the principle of popular sovereignty. He was also in favor of constitutional monarchy. He supported keeping the Meiji emperor, but not in the way that the Meiji constitution eventually became. And I think this is where the problem with later thinkers comes in. He was definitely in favor of a popular movement that would wrest popular rights from the government and embody them in a constitution and a form of government. Uh, What actually uh, came into being was a very, very different constitution based on a Prussian model. And I think at this time, there's a creation of of an imperial ideology, uh, the notion of kokutai. And this is sort of before, I mean, by the time Chomin is, let's say, about to die in 1901, this has already been firmly established. But in some ways, this is not something that he is constrained by when he's writing his works in the 80s. This is a creation of the 1890s and and really after the turn of the century, kind of this creation of of a sacred emperor who embodies the country. And this is the problem that later democratic thinkers, Sakuzo or uh, Minobe Tatsukichi, you know, they, you can consider them to be tributaries of the popular rights movement. And their notion of, for example, Sakuzo's Minpon Shugi, although that term is not used by Chomin at all, in fact, he comes somewhat close to Chomin's idea of a popular constitution in which the people are the base which is also an East Asian concept that goes back to Mencius, which Chomin is totally aware of. The idea of the emperor as the organ of the state, as in uh, Minobe Tatsukichi's theory, is also something that, I mean, there's articles by Chomin where he argues essentially the same thing, that it doesn't really make any difference if we have an emperor or king as long as we have popular sovereignty. So I do think it is a missed opportunity. I mean, this popular rights movement 
runs into difficulties actually in the early 80s and never really is able to challenge the constitution. It's interesting that Chomin actually runs for the first parliament and becomes a parliamentarian, but he resigns after a couple of months because he realizes that the members of the parliament have no real say over what the government is doing and no right to review the constitution. I, I do think that later on, basically in the 1930s, by that time, the notion of the emperor is sacred and the kokutai is a totally different situation from the situation that is early, that is the situation that Chomin is confronting. But in some ways, it grows out of the creation of the notion of Kokutai, the Meiji constitution, things that he fought all his life. As Shelley was talking about, you have these Chinese revolutionaries who are influenced by Nakai, and then later Minobe and Yoshino Sakuzo are influenced. But how come then, at the time of the people's rights movement in the 80s and 90s, there isn't that translation from popular rights to popular sovereignty that the Chinese revolutionaries made? Yeah, I think that basically, yeah, the situation, the reception of Chomin's work is rather different in China and Japan. And actually, Chomin is quoted in the 1880s as saying that he thinks that Rousseau will have a greater impact in China than it had in Japan. And as I said, he actually translates parts of Rousseau, even the social contract itself, to mean kind of like the fundamental law of the country, the constitution, the parliament, which is a distortion of Rousseau. So in that respect, we can say that his translation is not actually a translation at all. But he was in favor of a constitutional government, a constitutional monarchy, which is quite different from China, in which the popular movement was opposed to the monarchy. I, I think that those are distinctions. And for that reason, the more radical message of Rousseau had a greater impact on China, whereas I think Chomin saw Japan's future as a constitutional government. Xiaowei, now I want to come back to you. Another missed opportunity in the eyes of many Japanese intellectuals was the fact that the Chinese revolutionaries adopted not the Meiji model of revolution and Meiji model of a political system, but instead an American model. And in fact, many of the Japanese intellectuals felt somewhat betrayed by this. They said, well, we're the model of political modernization in East Asia. So why is it that the Chinese revolutionaries decided to go with, say, this American model rather than a Japanese model? First of all, I would say, let's think, who are the Japanese intellectuals? If Nakai Chomin were alive in the 1911, in the year of 1911, we would be very happy to see there was a republic established in China. So the most fascinating thing about Meiji history is, even though the government has a German-style constitution, which emphasized Goktai, which emphasized the importance of the emperor, a lot of the Japanese intellectuals disagreed with that model including Nakai Chomin, including Miyazaki, who played a very important role influencing Sunnitsen's revolution. So there are two things I want to clarify. First, this so-called American model was not the full picture of the 1911 revolution. Just like the French historian Bastide said, France always played an inspirational role in the 1911 revolution especially this concept, popular sovereignty. As a matter of fact, we all know that the American Revolution was also influenced 
by the concept of republicanism and liberalism. And in the American Revolution, popular sovereignty was also a big deal. So I wouldn't emphasize this is the American model rather than the French model or the Japanese model. We have to clarify what is the Japanese model? Yes, it's the government model. It's not the intellectuals ideal. And when we talk about American model, the most essential thing they were talking about were popular sovereignty, which was also shared by supporters of Rousseau. Is it as simple as the fact that from the Chinese perspective, it wasn't necessarily a Meiji model? Rather, the students who went to Japan were learning a Western model based on the theories of Rousseau and other translations by Nakai. So they're not really learning a Japanese model at all. They're just learning a Western model. I think you have summarized it really well. It's not a Japan model. It's a Western model. And as I said, I think one of the most influential thinkers for all Chinese students at that time, including reformers and the revolutionaries, is Rousseau. So for the last question, I want to ask, you know, this might be a little bit too broad, but we've been talking about this political discourse. But what is the legacy of, say, Nakai Cholmin and, and even of the popular rights movement and the way Nakai is interpreted in China for popular sovereignty in both countries today? Today, both China and Japan are you know, accused of being conformist. And we should definitely complicate these old stereotypes. But still, questions can be raised about the dynamics of state-society relationships in both countries. Has the momentum for popular rights and popular sovereignty been lost in these two countries over the decades? Yeah, this I, I think the situation is quite different in the two countries. I mean, Japan does have a democratic system of government, sort of the very thing that Nakai Chomin fought all his life for. So the situation with China is quite different. I think that in some ways... Yes, his vision of the future was realized in Japan, but at the same time, things that he had criticized in his writings, like the existence of strong bureaucratic government, of a kind of Confucian tradition in which officials are highly respected, continues to be one of the limits on democracy in Japan. Now, he himself was anything but a conformist. And uh, in fact, after he dies, the first book to be published about his life is a sort of tale of his eccentric behavior, like showing up in the national diet, wearing not the frock coat that he was expected to wear, but sort of dressed as a, you know, a worker. So he's, he was sort of famous for eccentric behavior and as a, as a strong individualist. It's interesting that I think there were a lot of people probably in the Meiji period who were famous as kind of oddballs, eccentrics, and that the conformism maybe of Japanese society is something that has, it, maybe it's stronger now than it was during that time. I believe that state society relations in Japan, some of the things that he criticizes in his writings in general the lack of ideals in Japan, the respect for officials, 
these are sort of aspects of Japanese culture that make maybe the realization of a real democracy more difficult. And so I want to pose the same question now to Xiaowei about the contemporary situation of state-society relations in China and Japan. In China's case, you know, we, we see recently protests in Hong Kong, for example. And so what is the legacy today of some of the writings of intellectuals like Liang Qichao or even Rousseau, you know, these ideas of popular sovereignty, what role do they play today in China? Mm-hmm. So I would answer this question from two perspectives. First is through the legal perspective. The first constitution China had after 1911 revolution, the first clause is sovereignty of the state lies with the people. So you could see this clearly came from Rousseau's idea, 国民之主权, national citizen sovereignty. 主权在国民, the sovereignty lies with the people. This both came from Liang Qichao's translation of Rousseau by way of Nakai Choni. And this line of argument continued into the current Chinese constitution. We have this clause saying, the people are the masters of the state. So this is the continued impact of Rousseau's concept of popular sovereignty in China. And this is from the legal perspective. If we look at a lot of the protests in China, one gist of the protest is people arguing, we are the people, we are the masters of the state. We have a say in this polity. And we see this kind of claims, again, having its origins in Rousseau's idea and having its origins in the students in Japan, their translations of Rousseau. So both as a legal claim in today's Chinese constitution, started from the first constitution in the Republican era, continued in current day PRC constitution. And also in protest, people were still saying, we have rights, we are the masters of the state, we have a say in this polity. And those kind of ideas originated from popular sovereignty ideas still inspired the activists in their demonstrations and in their activities. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.